Hello and welcome to the Mountain Gazette Library. I'm John Bustar, and this week we proudly present the writings of Doug Schnitzbahn, writer, editor-in-chief of Elevation Outdoors, and an editorial innovator. Enjoy. Enjoy the great American West. What's left of it? October, on top of Half Dome, the whole Sierra was blanketed with a foot of snow. On. I had just entered a pleasantly empty subway car. And the next thing you know, you're in this calm, calm water. When you know who you are, when you get in touch with yourself, you don't have choices. So I think as a journalist right now, you have a lot of opportunity to really put across quality work that will stand out in a sea of a lot of garbage. If I've learned anything about life balance, it would be that the no balance balance is where it's at. <laughs> Episode 7, The Wisdom of Neo Wise, written by Doug Schnitzbahn for Mountain Gazette 194. Mountain Gazette Library is proudly presented by Steo. Designed, developed, and tested at the base of the Tetons in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, Steel was founded to inspire connection with the outdoors through premium technical apparel for the epic and everyday. Learn more at Steo.com. S-T-I-O.com. Steel. Let the outside in. This episode is also brought to you in association with Gordini. Gordini has been redefining the cold weather experience through outdoor gear and glove innovation for more than 66 years. Based in Vermont, family run and independently owned, Gordini has focused on the same mission since its founding in 1956 to keep you outside longer. From introducing the first ever down and leather ski mitts to launching the industry's first dual layer ski sock, Gordini believes that the future is in our hands and now, our feet. Innovation is always done in the spirit of progress. See what drives our product and our passion at Gordini.com. G-O-R-D-I-N-I.com. Insomnia is a bitch. I'm still up working at 3 a.m., lying on the couch, the low glow of the laptop straining my eyes, so I head out to find the comet. I've seen images of it plastered across social media by photographer friends, the long, bright tail of Neowise streaking like a medieval harbinger of divine intervention, overnight scenes of red rock canyons and alpine lakes. The house is quiet, except for the gurgling of the fish tank, and outside is even quieter. This is one of the benefits of insomnia. It's only late at night like this when you notice just how much noise surrounds us on every side. The neighbor's godforsaken leaf blower to distant highways to the long boom of an airliner 30,000 feet above. Most days we can't hear the ringing of our own ears. We have blinded ourselves as well. Lights everywhere at all hours means that we can't even see the night sky properly in most places. Just take a look at a light pollution map of North America. The yellows and reds of skies that are now flooded with fossil fueled glow of human industry are taking over the continent like some ever-expanding blob bent on its own manifest destiny. Float the Grand Canyon, and as you finish the trip, you can see the lights of Vegas far off in the night sky, slowly erasing those nights when primeval stars took precedence down in the depths of the canyon. Our growing obsession with banishing the dark messes up migrating birds and throws other animals' internal clocks out of whack. It causes microorganisms to bloom in water. On most of my street, there are rows of lamps, making us safer, supposedly. 
but I'm personally pleased most when they burn out. And at 3 a.m., the time when Neowise technically Comet C-2020F3, but the nickname came from its first observers who used the Wide Field Infrared Survey Explorer, otherwise known as WISE, W-I-S-E, Space Telescope Searching for Near-Earth Objects, or N-E-O. Should be here on the northeast horizon, the dull glow of the closest street lamp, and all the lights of Boulder and Denver give the night sky a purplish cast. There are also scattered clouds across the sky, though I can make out a faint but never-changing Polaris, following the pointer stars of the Big Dipper and Red Arcturus tracing the arc of its handle. I can even make out the slight line of Draco, the dragon weaving its serpentine body between the two dippers. But most of the sky is hidden, and the clouds are sitting right where the comet should be. This comet seems apt in its age of COVID-19 and the implosion of America. After all, in 1066, Halley's Comet foretold the end of Anglo-Saxon England with the coming of the Norman invaders led by William the Conqueror, who only received his title because the superior king, Harold Goodwinson, was unlucky enough to catch an arrow in the eye and the tide of battle turned. Or the Comet of 1959, appearing at the death of King Edgar the Peaceful. Ah, the serene scene of the 1950s, and ushering in a famine. Of course, Mark Twain would arrive in 1835 with the reappearance of Halley's Comet and leave this planet with it when it returned in 1910. And both astronomers and New Age conspiracy theorists have noted the coming of the first observed interstellar comet C-2019 Q4 in late 2019, just as COVID-19 began its global scourge. Of course, we can impart meaning to any phenomenon, creating omens out of chance occurrences. We find connections when we need them. The constellations appear so obvious once you learn them. Some, like Cassiopeia or Orion, seem undeniable. But are they not just patterns we have defined in our own need for stories? Science will tell you this is simply the human brain, a network of complex ganglia communicating through chemical and electrical signals, arranging patterns as it does in order to function and orient itself within observational and sensory phenomena. But even armed with that knowledge, we want this comet to mean something, be it the end of times or dawn of a new age. Nothing is more depressing than arbitrariness. Like everyone on this planet at this time, my life is full of uncertainty. And like most 50-somethings, I both feel as if I am about to fulfill my life's purpose and as if I have missed the boat and I am ready to start the long slide down. I find it hard to concentrate on a computer all day long. Once a prolific creative writer, I become a slave to commerce, writing to pay the bills to make sure my family has healthcare. So I fry my brain at night. When I was younger, I worked for the forest service, building trails and fighting fires, living out of a sleeping bag, strewn on the bare ground and staring at the stars, learning the constellations every night. 
I know I had anxieties then, but they seem insignificant in my current spot. Mired in the middle age, in the midst of a pandemic, as everything from the health of the ecosystem to the success of our democracy falls apart. Meh. It's the same for all of us. This isn't Earth's first plague. I moved out west again, like so many people, to escape the crush of the East Coast, to shake off my demons, to find a life based around this rough nature world. Skiing, climbing peaks, fishing. The first time I saw a comet was after a long season of fighting wildfires in Montana and Idaho and ski bumming in Whitefish. One of my fellow workers had told me about the wanders of Grand Gulch down in Utah. So my girlfriend and I packed up the car and drove south, camping at Dead Horse Point. We looked up that night to see Comet Hale Bop in all its glory and wonder what it might mean, or better yet, simply enjoy the show above the desert with the sky filled by stars. Hiking down Grand Gulch the next few days, the comet, which it turns out, also not only emitted its long streamer of light, but also an invisible sodium tail 50 million kilometers long, felt familiar each night. By day, we walked through the ruins that have since been looted of their corn cobs and pot sherds, sunbathed naked on the red rocks, breathed. At night, I told her stories from the constellations. Leo, recognizable by the bright glow of blue star Regulus, is the skin of the Noman lion killed by Hercules, seeking penitence for its fits of deadly rage. Orion, the hunter, beloved by Artemis, met by Odysseus when he was no more than a shade in the underworld. Dogged forever by the scorpion that killed him, the form of the constellation Scorpio which always appeared across the horizon from him in the sky. Those days felt as if they existed outside of time. Did Hale Bob hearken in something for me, for the world? Sadly and most famously, the comet is probably best known for the 21 men and 18 women of the Heaven's Gate cult who quietly killed themselves, hauled up in a swank San Diego excerpt in order to catch a ride on the spaceship they believed was hiding behind it and calling to them. I did soon after move away from my beloved dark skies in Montana to go to grad school in Seattle's city limits and incessant clouds. That girlfriend and I had an ugly breakup, but grad school got me writing professionally and she and I were not meant for the long term. And the world? Atrocities continued in Rwanda and the Balkans. But here at home, Bill Clinton's definition of sexual relations and the politics of the 1990s seem bucolic compared to our current climate of non-stop anxiety fueled by social media, virus hoax protests, and desire to tear each other apart. King Harold winks his one eye from Elysium. Astronomers observe a lot of near-Earth objects. Couldn't we find any sign for these events if we looked? Staring up at a full sky of stars, the kind you see from the bottom of the Grand Canyon or out in the Sahara should fill you up with nothing more than nihilism. We are certainly insignificant in the cosmic count. Even our ability to count is dwarfed by the sheer number of other worlds up there. The center of our own galaxy, which even astronomers simply referred to as the Milky Way, 
rather than assuming its numerical classification as say, the romantic Andromeda, is M31 to scientists. It's still a mystery to us, a hulking black hole, the gravitational mass around which our own sun, one of some hundred billion, spins like a chunk of comet dust, with an average of 10 million stars packed into every 3.3 light years, all cratering into itself. We can just barely see where it is, off past Sagittarius where the visible Milky Way pools on the horizon. No wonder the ancients saw gods up there and gave that arm of the galaxy that we can see lovely names like the folks who got delicate Milky Way or Naganha, the Silver River in Vietnamese or the Darb Al-Tabana, the Hay Merchant Way in Arabic. These metaphors let our minds find something to grab onto in those inconceivable reaches that even today, despite the fact that we have mastered the secrets of our own planet so well that we are engaged in wiping life out on it, and we can analyze the line spectra of comets and distant suns to be able to tell exact elements inside them, are impossible for us to reach, much less comprehend. And the Milky Way itself is just a backwater in the galactic metropolis. Never mind if you subscribe to the theory of multiverses. We don't even exactly agree on how or if our universe is expanding, what it's expanding into, the nature of dark matter, the significance of space within space. Worst of all, we are locked in time and casualty. Even the heavens are limited. Look into the night sky, and as the poet Rainier Maria Reich, now long gone, noted, there is a star that died long ago. This should make us sick, should fill us with a sense of meaninglessness. Ah, but the power of the human ego, even with this infinite incomprehensibility, we are still the center of our own universes, the mass within our dark matter. All cynicism aside, the size of the universe fills me not with the nausea, but hope when I stare up at it. When I know I can't count stars, when I know there may be multiverses where Harold's Anglo-Saxon kingdom brushed off the Normans, where my failures have a second chance, where all probability melds into one ribbon, it makes me feel at peace. Is there any simpler human pleasure than stargazing? I am a reader of signs. At a young age, I became fascinated by tarot cards. My grandmother, who could get deer to eat out of her hand and would tell me she was a witch when she put her fingers through the candle flame, gave me my first deck. Forget fortune telling, the cards tell archetypal stories. They speak to signposts within us and through those we can tell our inner narrative. And as any good writer knows, from there the end game, the future, simply plays out. My favorite card, of course, has always been the star, which symbolizes hope. It's also the card of Aquarius, my sign. I have found constellations of Aquarius in the sky, the Babylonian river. It's very faint and difficult to make out. It was clearer in Sumerian days and is slowly disappearing as stars' shapes will do over a millennia. Even the constellations are impermanent. But yes, I feel it every time I look to the stars, the pull of a beyond, 
an idea that we can be something more than our human foibles, that there is nothing to fear in infinity, only in our own ego. It's like trying to reach the edge of the universe, go far enough, some psychiatrists say, and you end up back where you began. I am a reader of stars. There are times out in the wild when I simply let them blur. But most of the time, I have found great joy, and yes, hope, in interpreting them. Sea kayaking in Baja, when afternoon winds made travel difficult, we launched before sunset to Mars shining red like a beacon in Scorpio as it rose up out of the sea of Cortez. In Montana's Madison Range building trails, I spent nights orienting myself, starting with Polaris, always easy to find thanks to the Big Dipper, and moving on across the sky from that frame of reference, understanding how the view of the stars changes with the spin of the Earth and our planet's orbit around the sun. In Lapland, the Arctic dark, I could see Draco's scaly body perfectly. On the Colorado River, at night in pure dark, I gazed at star reflections on still water. The stars tell me the time of night and the time of year. They comfort me. I look up. I hope for the clouds to move on, for the bright tail of this three mile wide chunk of rock and ice finally catching fire in its orbital meetup with the inevitable heat and gravity of the sun after centuries of frozen loneliness. I know just where to look. I know I am here at the right time, alone, nothing. So I stand there in the middle of the street, my bare feet cold on the pavement. The wind moves the leaves of the oak I planted a decade ago in my yard. They speak in soft rustle. The pre-dawn air is crisp and clean, and I am overcome by the urge to just start walking and never come back, to lose my name, to give up on a lifetime of school, career, learning, CVs, work, and become a barefoot, homeless hermit, a ghost to fade. I first really saw the stars, uncountable lights, the river of the Milky Way, the full outlines of constellations as a child in the 70s, when I would visit my grandparents in New Jersey's northwestern Appalachian Hills. My grandfather was an engineer professor at Rutgers. My grandmother, who gave me the tarot cards, a sculpturist. Both performed as stage magicians. He would put her in a miniature tied temple and drive swords through her as she wiggled bright handkerchiefs and hands and toes before sliding the blades back out and opening up the illusion to show her unharmed. There was danger at their house. Hunters who left paper bags full of deer limbs at the end of their driveway. Copperheads under the front porch, a replica of King Tut's dead mask over the door where they sent me to retrieve ginger ale from the extra fridge down there, full darkness at night. Some nights my grandmother, who had her own ghost, would turn to me at the dinner table after a few Johnny Walker blacks and announce, if the spaceship comes, I'm going. It always just made me feel uncomfortable, but now, faced with the sharp realities of adulthood, I get it. And yearn, too, from all that seems failed in myself and our species, to find some place that's not the mess we keep creating down here. We continue to lose even the ability to stargaze, to light pollution, and our obsessions with our screens. 
and we continue to lose our need to tell stories by them. What's left when we only look inside rather than light years away? But of course, standing in the street, I don't start walking. I stand there longer, waiting for wisdom from Neowise. I am an insomniac reader of signs of looking for something of significance. If the spaceship comes, fuck yeah. Take me up in some beautiful tractor beam of light. Show me how your alien species had taken advantage of great intelligence and communication and compassion in a way ours seems unable to do. But I know I can't go, even if it were better. I am a stargazer, but of Earth. I have children and a wife and a family and friends I love and their ability to bear their time here. We can plot it both in the revolutions of Earth and to exact detail in a map of the cosmos. Depends on me. That simple love is worth everything. There is no comment tonight. There is still beauty in places where humans have not smeared themselves all over the workings of other species. There is the hope. There is the wisdom I have gleaned from chunks of frozen gas that we only see every 4,000 years. From stars that may no longer be alive. From multiverses of possibility and the crushing size of the universe. The stars provide this respite, this moment to see not just into the past of existence and the line spectra of barren worlds, but into the stillness of trusting our own ego. That helps, somehow. There's still a lot to stay here for. There are more comments in future days. I head inside. The Mountain Gazette Library is produced and hosted by me, John Boostar. For more, head over to mountaingazette.com slash subscribe today and pick up a subscription to the magazine. This podcast is executive produced by Mike Rogie, marketing by Austin Holt, produced by Connor Sedmak, social media by Amy Doran, and public relations by Ryan Rowe. No part of this podcast may be reproduced without written permission from Mountain Gazette and its parent company, Verb Cabin, LLC. 